Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Uh, She is a librarian, and also my mom, and I'm a writer, sort of, and also cool and handsome and strong. And this is a podcast about books, I guess. Seems... Kind of anachronistic, if you think about it. I think it's more about reading. Sure. Because we read things and then we discuss it. They're not necessarily always books. Sometimes they're novellas. Sometimes they're short stories. Sometimes they're comic books. Sometimes they're novels. Sometimes they're long reads on Twitter. I mean, it could be anything. Sure. Okay. All right. It's not a podcast about books. I guess our official stance is fuck books. <laughs> Screw them. We don't read need them. anything you want in any form that you want and talk about it all day long. Yeah, so uh, we read a thing. So we it may read- or may not have been a book. I can't say. I, I plead the fifth as to whether or not it was a book. Uh, but it was called All Systems Read, book one of the Murderbot Chronicles. Diaries. Diaries? Yes. Trilogy? Diaries. Diaries. Uh, by Martha Wells. It's called All Systems Red. Did I say that already? Right. And it's a it's a novella. Yes, it won it was, the Hugo Award. It was published in 2017 by Tor.com. And it won the 2018 Hugo Award for Best Novella and the 2017 Nebula Award for Best Novella. Ooh. And it's, it's a, a huge neb. That's not a thing. No, but it, should it could be. be. So it's four novellas to make up this arc of this story, which is the Murder Bot Diary. Yes. And then Martha Wells is, um, she writes mostly science fiction and fantasy young adult novels. That makes sense. She um, has a background in anthropology and she claims that she likes to create complex worlds, which I guess you can see a little bit in this. And um, she's worked, and I think you might find this interesting, she's worked on the Stargate and the Star Wars tie-in novels for various... Okay branches of those series and she worked on writing cards for magic the gathering oh okay cool so and i think her most popular series is called raxura it's a fantasy young adult series it's very popular i haven't read it but it's almost like a high fantasy um series for yeah i'm not really plugged into the young adult scene i guess i don't know what's hot and what isn't do they still like vampires? Who's to say? Not me. I don't know. I like this, the cover of the artwork. I, I should have figured out who the artist was, but it sort of had a really like a sort of, you know, Geiger-esque kind of high science fiction artwork. It's like a painting of the of the titular murder bot, right? Right. So... I'm going to try and figure out who to discover while we're talking. So, Murderbot is a a security unit. She's a cyborg robot. She's mostly a robot, but she has biological or organic parts. And she's different because most of the security units have governors in them that allow an overwrite by human input. So, they work as security they do like protection and things like that, but somehow she and it's not really clear in the knob in this story. 
she has disabled the governor so she cannot be controlled by humans. I mean, it's pretty, it, they make it pretty clear. So what we find out happens, obviously this is jumping ahead in the narrative to when this is revealed, but what happened was the murder, murder bot was stationed somewhere. Their governor module malfunctioned and they lost control of their body and slaughtered their the their clients. So the idea with they slaughtered their clients and then when they were they were shut down for a while and eventually assigned to this new operation, they received a, an info packet update that had a bunch of specs on their equipment and their operating system and they used that to hack the governor module so that they would never lose control of their body again and presumably Hopefully not kill a bunch of people again. Well, I think what's interesting about... Well, first of all, the cyborg, she calls herself Murderbot. She's not a Murderbot, but that is the name that she has given herself in response to the incident where she went on a berserker and killed a lot of people. She uses it sort of... Or they use it sort of like a name to describe themselves. They also use it as like a category descriptor, not for other sec units... But for themselves, they refer to themselves as a murder bot sometimes. But she also, I think... In the same way you might refer to yourself as a person. I, yeah, I was going to say, she sort of self-identifies herself as a murder bot. Like, she realizes that's part of her identity. Well, there, yeah, there's a part in the story where somebody asks them, Hey, do you have a name? And they're, they are confused and don't know how to respond. And a person who has looked through their files are like... They call themselves a murder bot. Right. Or it calls itself murder bot. They refer to murder bot as it through a lot of this novel, which is... But I think what's interesting is she is hired on or she's assigned to work as security for a research expedition that's going to this planet to look at different um, minerals and the landscape to see if there's any value to this. Um, it's almost like mining, like a mining spec. Like, this company bought the speculation research grant to look at this planet to see if there was anything worth mining or harvesting from that planet. And so a bunch of... It's kind of like a traditional sci-fi setup. A bunch of scientists go to this uninhabited planet, in quotation marks, with this murder bot as their protection. And she is assigned to take care, to be the security person to watch over these scientists and keep them out of trouble because the company has a contract with whoever she works for. So they don't know that she doesn't have her governor. Yeah. And then she's also, I guess it was part of her personality that's revealed, she is very much fascinated by human entertainment. She likes soap operas and serials and she sp- wants to spend a lot of her time looking at, like, entertainment that she downloads into her, I guess, her brain unit that she can watch on her downtime. Yeah, the artist of the the, the cover is uh, named Jamie Jones. It's a really cool cover. It's kind, it's a, like a kind of a throwback almost to, like, 70s or 80s style sci-fi cover. Yeah, if you're familiar with like imaginative realism, it's like one of those sort of yeah. sort of things. Exactly the kind of art you would see on a magic card, honestly. Yeah. I mean, definitely. except in science fiction, but Definitely. So, she, 
so there's an incident where the scientists are doing research and they're attacked by what, in my mind, is almost like a giant worm from Dune. Yeah, and well, one of the scientists- Murderbot is confused. Doesn't is unsure whether it has teeth or cilia, which makes it sound like it's a worm. Yeah. And then she ends up saving two of the scientists who are wounded and she takes them back to their compound. And that's when she starts to realize when she's looking at the map to try to figure out what happened, she's reviewing it. She realizes there's gaps in the information that the company that they bought the prospecting contract from. So there's missing parts of the map and parts of the the planet that are supposed to be discovered are not listed. Yeah, so the trick of this novel is that it makes it seem... Like it's going to be a sci-fi conspiracy story, but it's actually a Western. Yeah, I think so. Because it turns out there's an evil corporation. It's rustlers. And, yeah. They're claim jumpers, is what it turns out they're, is they're actually up against. But I think the big sort of character development in this plot, in the story, is Murderbot. Because she has distanced herself from humans because of what happened to her in her past. And even though she feels obligated to protect and care for them, she doesn't want them to protect and care for her. So as the as they're caught sort of in this standoff, they go they go to explore this other camp that they know is on the other side of the planet, and they realize that there's these sort of evil bots, and there's this plot going on. They have a sort of nebulous corporation called the Grey Chris, which is some kind of like. This one would be more important than the other story. Yeah, I think so. But this is sort of setting that up. There, so. are, they, they do an interesting thing as far as like exposition with the villains goes, where we only ever get like Doctor Mensa is the other like major major character in the story, and she's the director, the leader of this operation, and as we'll learn later, also a major political figure in the like space sector that this survey group comes from. Uh, she figures out what Grey Christ wants, which is to uh, illegally salvage some lost civilizations' uh, settlements. But we never get the scene where we never get someone from Grey Christ. Is Grey Christ or Grey Christ? I think it's Grey Christ. That's the note I have. I yeah. don't have the book anymore. Um, great. Nobody from Great Chris ever says what their plan is, and there's never a parlor parlor room scene where Mensa says her findings to a Great Chris person and they confirm it. So it's entirely possible that they wanted something completely different, but we get some idea of what they might want. I think it was interesting because it seems like even at the point where she comes up with this complicated scheme to trick the other murder bots and save the humans that are on the survey team. And in the midst of this sort of shootout and this sort of double cross or triple cross, this is the part that really does seem like it's a Western because they have to come up with this plan to defend the town. You know, it's kind of that kind of... Like, yeah, they send Murderbot in by themselves and they to, like, talk to them and they're secretly armed. And you can very easily imagine that that's, like, the man with no name and instead of hiding... His gun under his poncho, Murderbot is hiding their gun inside of their own arms. Right. But I think what's interesting is the whole... So she ends up getting injured. And in the beginning of the book, she's injured and she Mm. has sort of a pod, which is sort of like her room. It's like an isolation chamber where she can go in... Cubicle. 
Yeah, her cubicle where she can go in and she can repair. And I don't really, I mean, it's, it's not clear if she identifies as a female, but in my mind, it seems like she seems like a female, like uh, a strong female character. Maybe that's what I want her to be. I, I, un, I, there's no, I don't think there's ever any definitive statement made about the Murderbot's gender. People refer to Murderbot as it, and Murderbot never refers to itself right. really with um, personalized pronouns. I read them as being gender non-binary because they're like an artificially grown, cybernetically enhanced super soldier security guard. I, I that is probably correct. That's why I keep using the they pronouns, but I don't feel the need to correct you when you use she because we don't know. And I think it's a perfectly valid interpretation that Murderbot is a, a feminine figure. I think there's a lot of like. Like, in a lot of ways, Murderbot reminds me of a teen girl. That's exactly... I really did get sort of that vibe. I think that's... Maybe I want Murderbot to be a strong, independent, but complicated female character. Mm-hmm. So that's why... And I sort of got the gender kind of a clue from the cover of it. You know, gender... Like, Murderbot looks feminine or maybe really just androgynous. But anyway, she goes to this cubicle and she has her downtime and she can repair herself. But when they go to the town, she doesn't have access to her cubicle anymore. And she's sort of... I think the cover's pretty gender neutral. I don't know. I kinda, it just I got looks like, like Boba a, Fett armor. No, I got a sort of like... Like Samus from like Metroid vibe from uh, it? Kind of. Maybe. I don't know. The I'm, other thing is there's a the one when... In the initial... Wait, I gotta get... Oh, sorry. I gotta finish this point. I'm sorry. So, because it's a key plot point. So when she goes to the town and she... And they do this scheme, this plot to destroy the other murder bots, she is injured. But because she can't fix herself in her cubicle, she's dependent on the human doctors to fix her. So when the doctors start working on her, they realize that she doesn't have her governor. They repair her... And they don't put the governor back in. They accept her as the way that she is without her, the part that she's supposed to have as a security unit. So the humans accept her as the way that she is as the murder bot. And she has a hard time processing that because yeah. she she is used to distancing herself from humans. But now she's finding that she has a relationship with humans and they have a relationship with her and they accept her. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot... Well, okay. Well, the thing I was going to say in regards to the gender thing is, um, I don't think the the book itself never really describes her or their physical form with any sort of specific details. So, in the initial confusion after the attack from a hostile one, that's what they call the worm thing that attacks them. Uh, she takes off. She like disengages the. She normally has her helmet opaqued, and then they disengage that to comfort one of the scientists who is injured. And they describe their face as generic human, and that's the deepest insight we get right. into what the murder bot looks like under their armor is generic human. And I don't know what that means. Like reading it for with like a twenty first century perspective, the thing that I imagine is that generic bald guy that you always start with when you start a video game with a character creator and you select default and then you you build off of that 
I but who's to say what that means in future space world? I tended to just imagine them as being like a almost completely nondescript androgynous person like uh you know like when they show a super advanced alien in like Star Trek and they're just like a bald person with like a no eyebrows and a flowing white gown that's what I was imagining that but in combat armor yeah i think that's probably the best descriptor i think though i mean the reason why i probably identified her as female is because she did sort of remind me like you said of like a young adult character and i think a lot of her like internal monologue that's happening aside from the action of the story is her feeling disenfranchised. And some of the things and some of the robot emotions that she's feeling are very similar to feelings that a young adult, a character written specifically for a young adult audience would have. She feels disenfranchised. She feels sort of um, not connected. There's this sort of like isolation and this desire for like individuality, but also fitting into, like, a greater construct. Yeah, by the end of the novel, it becomes clear that the Murderbot's main deal is that they don't want to be told what to do, and they do not know what they want to do. I also think that there's a lot of stuff to be read in here in regards to neurodiversity. I think Murderbot, in a lot of ways, reads as someone who is neurodivergent, whether that's somebody who's just suffering from like an anxiety disorder or who is somewhere on the autism spectrum. And I think there's a, one of the most interesting things about the book to me is, so the thing that Murderbot does once they've hacked their governor module is to just watch a shit ton of TV. Yeah. They're obsessed specifically with this soap opera. Well, they call it a serial, but from the way they describe it, it's very clearly a soap opera called Sanctuary Moon. And they watch a ton of that and other TV. And the novel deals very heavily with this idea that someone who is neurodivergent and has trouble dealing with the real world would retreat into the safety of these of fiction. Because like, there's this idea that, like, sure, characters in fiction have problems. But whatever their problems are, they're not your problems. And in your world, one thing, in, in Murderbot's case trying to deal with humans they don't really understand is the most important thing in the world. And in the world of Sanctuary Moon, that's not important at all. And this other thing is the most important thing in the world. And that makes it, – it provides this, like, respite from the stresses of your reality. And obviously that's not like a t- – escapism makes you feel better is not a particularly novel idea. But I think the way it's explored in this is really, like, honest and – I think I agree with you, but I mean, in my, it still reinforces my idea that she's a teenager because there is that phase sort of where teenagers want to create their own cone of independence and they do that by sort of trying to isolate themselves from people that they feel that they might be dependent on. And then there's also that sort of counterpoint where a lot of teenagers are obsessed and concerned and emotionally invested in pop culture sure you know that's why like teens identify so completely with characters and books that they read or tv shows or different ways that they can connect to people who are similar to them which they may not have in their direct 
sphere of people that they know, they could, you know, reach out to pop culture, to literature or music, to find people that they can identify with. And I think that's kind of what the murder bot is doing. She's looking for some way to make a connection. But what happens is she ends up making the connection with the scientists and the doctors that are right there in her survey team. Yeah. I think there's also a, a reading, I think, of Murderbot where she they're not a teen, but they're they're like a there's so there's this idea that with a lot of um, you know, people in like the LGBT community or who wear your adolescence is kind of stolen from you because you're forced to play this role where you're complying to whatever you is the like socially acceptable role for you. And then once you figure out what your identity actually is and you make the break from your expected societal roles, you sort of have your adolescence again as an adult usually. And I think that Murderbot, you can read Murderbot like that because there's this idea that like they were grown in a vet. They did not get to be a child or a teenager and they spent all of this time, who knows how long, under the control of the governor module before breaking from it and now they all of a sudden they're, you know, an aware adult, like, mentally, but have not lived the experience of a childhood and adolescence. I, so they retreat into this sort of adolescent mode. I think that makes sense. And I think, like, then I would amend my opinion that she's a teenager and make her more of, a, like, an early 20s millennial. Because I think it's so much different. I mean, I think you can read it both ways. I think. Well, I think that what makes her her is not only is it like herself the murder bot personality but it's also a comment on like evolving or even growing up or in her like rewriting her you know os in in a society that's like obsessed with technology Mm -hmm. and digital and social media and pop culture and i think that's sort of she's trying to rebuild herself as an individual without her governor but She's in a society that where, you know, it's 24-hour-a-day, like, you know, information coming in that's sort of overloading her. And she chooses to decide that she wants to only interact with certain types of information. Mm-hmm. So, But I think it's like, in adult literature, you know, there's this whole trend for this, like, horrible, unreliable narrator, these unredeemable characters. But in young adults... It's still very traditional, even though they're doing cutting edge writing in young adult novels. There's also there's always like a really strong positive character who is the star of the series, and there's always something that's evil, whether it be a stepmother, or like from the Cinder series, or a government, or like the Hunger Games. You know, the whole society. There's still that cut and dry of like we're one person and we're fighting against something that's clearly evil. Where, like, in, you know, sort of mainstream literature right now, like Jonathan Franzen, it's like, everybody's awful. But in young adult novels, it's still like, we're not that awful. We're just different. We're just trying to figure it out. But there is something that is actually awful and evil, and it could be a giant corporation or the president of the United States or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think the thing that, maybe the thing that I like the most about Murderbot as a character is they're a kind of character you don't really see in a lot of science fiction, especially this kind of, like, 
we're out in space on the frontier, space colonies, wormholes, sort of science fiction, which is just kind of a dirtbag. Like, Murderbot just doesn't want to work and wants to watch TV and they're lazy and bored and bad at their job and they don't read the things they're supposed to read. And there's this, like, really great, like, genuinely maybe my favorite moment in the book is when the survey team realizes that Murderbot doesn't know, like, what their deal is and why they're there. And they're like, you got the thing. Why didn't you read it? And Murderbot is just like, I didn't want to. Well, isn't that one? And they're like, what do you mean you didn't want to? That's suspicious. And they're like, it was boring. But that is 100% a behavior of, like, someone who feels disenfranchised. Yeah, exactly. But I'm saying, like, so, I feel like a lot of science fiction stories would have been about, like, Murderbot learning to be, like, good at something that's not murdering. And, like, they would have had this, like, let's all work together, hard work thing, where the end of the story, Murderbot is still, like, Fuck work. I want to watch TV. And then there's this like great part where they're talking. They, she finds out that the they find out that the um, survey team is from this like socialist or communist society, uh, and it, constructs and bots are free citizens there. And Murderbot's like, yeah, but I've seen like the vids, and they're all like smiling and working and doing stuff and if they had shown them like laying around and watching tv maybe i'd be interested but i don't want to go there because i don't want to work because working fucking sucks and it's like yeah no that's great like i so much science fiction has this like if it doesn't have like a buy your bootstraps like libertarian capitalist sheen to it a lot of it has like an almost eerily Stalinist, like, let's all work in a big factory and hit hammers on sheets of metal vibe to it. And I like some science fiction that can be read in a kind of anti-work lens. Because that's a lens that's very important to me. Because I hate doing stuff. I think what I was thinking about, like, other iconic robot-specific stories, you know, like Asimov and, mm-hmm. and how it's either, like... A very friendly, helpful robot that wants to be a human, mm-hmm. or it's an evil berserker robot that goes on a rampage and has to be destroyed. But there's a third one because there's the mopey, sad, philosophical robot. And Murderbot is none of those. Like they don't feel great. They're they're very clearly suffering from something akin to depression. But also, they're not like, "Am I human? When do you become alive?" They're like, "That's why I want to watch TV." That's what I think is, like, refreshing about Yeah, that's what I was saying. I mean, that's what makes it a really interesting take on, like, the robot genre, the young adult genre, and sort of the science fiction, you know, bubble that's happening. But I think what's interesting, what I liked most about I liked the writing style. I thought it was very sparse, and it was sort of very honest and, and not very, like, purpley. It didn't go into this huge front end like heavy loaded like world building because a lot of you know a lot of sci-fi has that giant like chunk that you have to like play off through so you know like what what kind of world does Murderbot lived in I mean the story just literally starts with you like she opens her eyes and and then you're like you're right in the story you don't know you have to sort of figure it out yourself the same way that she's doing and it's kind of like I, I appreciate the part where that where she could have like where Martha Wells could have loaded 
the story with this whole exposition about what the survey team was doing through the, you know, the plot point of Murderbot reading that document. And she was kind of like, fuck it. I think it's boring. You're yeah. going to think it's boring. Why don't we just skip it? Everybody knows what survey teams and planetary mining, you know, they've read so many other stories like that. If you read sci-fi, you've come across that sort of backstory of like the, you know, this planetary mining companies. And they're always evil. I mean, we saw Alien. We know what's going on. But there's an interesting thing that just does where the mining company is evil, but they're evil in a very real way, which is just that they're... They don't care about the people, and so they give them faulty equipment, and they try to spy on them, and they're just kind of... I mean, it's a very, like, modern-day, neoliberal, democratic capitalist kind of evil. Yeah, I mean... And then it it turns out that while they, they all become convinced that the mining company is trying to kill them, and it turns out that, no, it's these other people. The mining company doesn't give a shit about you. But the mining company also does a very modern and very present day thing of making people buy a survey license from them and then sending them off with inferior equipment but also sending them which they paid to do the work for them yeah yeah. so this corporation is cheating the people that are dependent on them which is very much what goes on in a lot of corporations yeah but they're not like cyber satan in a way that like as much as i like um cyberpunk stuff and william gibson I feel like a lot of times it's like, who? Why would they care enough to be this evil? Yeah, <laughs> and I appreciate That's true. that. And then the same thing, like Gray Chris, is mostly just kind of stupid and venal. Like the the big twist reveal is not is that there is no conspiracy. The blank parts in the map are just because Gray Chris did a shitty job of hacking the navigation system and accidentally deleted a bunch of data, or or at least that's what Doctor Mensa thinks they did. Yeah, I think it was an interesting, it's an interesting comment on technology and society and these sort of concepts of feeling isolated and alienated and these sort of human and non-human relationships, which I think is nice. I also like the idea that it's sort of like a fix-up novel. I mean, it could have easily just been one big novel, but she broke it into four small novellas, which came out pretty close to each other. All of them came out within a year. So I guess she had planned this sort of Murderbot series and in a way that sort of was interesting instead of making a really long novel, kind of like made it seem like it was like a purposeful like decision to sort of send it's out kind small of a, chunks. It's kind of a fix it down if you think about it. Um, I think that's an interesting idea, though, because especially the way that media works now, like if you are going to write something that's episodic in nature, which this feels like I haven't read the other parts, but I feel like it is or like a picaresque novel or something like if it's going to be cordoned off into chunks anyway within the structure of the narrative, then why not separate those out into easily digestible chunks that people can just pick up on their own? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think. It's sophisticated in the decision to do it that way, because a it could lot also of times is a money grab. Well, I mean, I don't know for her that it. I don't think it is. I'm just saying. Yeah, I think Tor is a little more savvy in like their publishing decisions. Yeah, Tor, Tor is an interesting publisher. I feel like they take a lot of chances. They give a lot of stuff away for free. That like in a way that I think a lot of other publishers would be hesitant to do. 
I mean, can you think about if she went to a different publisher as a known entity, as a young adult novelist who writes fantasy novels? That's the moneymaker right there. And then she pitches a hard science fiction sort of series about a murderous robot? I mean, no, I... Don't... They're not a murderous robot. They're a, a robot that was a murderer by accident. By accident. Well, I think that's another thing where she has like every she has this past that she has to come to grips with, which is well, yeah. I mean, like that's like the big moment that makes her realize, like, oh, it's f- like in a way, f- la- uh, keeping the governor module intact is more a immoral than hacking it, because an intact governor module means. You can kill without choosing to, whereas the a hacked governor module means you have to choose to kill. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it's interesting. I could definitely see this as a TV series or a movie. You know what it reminded me of more than anything is like an early two thousands indie sci fi movie. Like this is about the kind of thing that would have been filmed on digital video and would have like popped up on demand somewhere. This reminded me of stuff like Hunter Prey, especially because like. The big murder bot is just, like, in-universe, is just a person in a suit. Like, you could film this super cheaply, and it would probably be pretty cool. Yeah, because it kind of seemed like... There's, like, three locations. She, like, yeah, she was dumped, like, in this desert planet that's kind of, like, you know, it's kind of, like, go to Australia, film it in the desert, add a couple special effects. Yeah, you see one alien monster. The other thing is there's three locations. The second location is described as being almost exactly like the first location, except there's a bunch of dead bodies around and the lights are off. Well, yeah, that's (laughs) kind of like, that's the sort of abandoned town that you roll into and, you know, shit's about to go down. Yes. I also wonder if that was a deliberate reference to The Thing. Because if you're familiar with John Carpenter's The Thing... There's there are two locations in the movie. There's the base, and then there's the Norwegian base that they go to in the beginning of the movie. And the Norwegian base is the same set as their base. It's just been fucked up with dead bodies and fire. Yeah, I think, I mean, that could be it. It could just, you know, be like a sort of representation of this, this sparseness of, you know, their society. Even when they're in their own sort of compound, it's kind of like... It seems like it's almost like a series of tents that are sort of like inflated and it's not permanent. Like everything seems temporary. Well, I mean, they are a survey crew. It's not like they're setting up a colony. Yeah. And then at the end of the story, spoiler alert, if you're going to read it, you probably did because I think everybody in the universe has read it at this point. Yeah. Also, we already spoiled a ton of it anyway. She goes, she leaves the survey team after they invite her to stay at a full member of the team and they want to include her in... in They're going to take her back to Progress, which is the name of the place they're from, and Dr. Mensa is going to be their guardian because free citizen bots need a guardian, which is like, it's an interesting thing because Murderbot does not like that idea. But also, you it's a decision that makes sense from a certain perspective because it's like, you know, you're a bot or a contract is a person who has suddenly become fully self-aware and capable with no past. You probably should have somebody keeping an eye on you, for, at least for a while. But Yeah, but I think she sort of rejects that because she, in her mind, has been sentient and self-aware for longer than the humans realize. Well, yeah, it's also they want to be able to make their own decision free from the influence of... I mean, in, in a way, Mensa becomes a very parental figure 
to murder bod and then they make the decision to to set out on their own and do something else it did make me a little worried because we get like oh in progress it's this like utopian communist society where everybody's poly and you can be a robot and be a citizen and murder bod's like nah not for me and i'm like i don't think it's going there but that ending could very easily lead into some heinleinian libertarian bullshit i hope it doesn't but I think it's, well, it's kind of like she does a hobo thing at the end. She just kind yeah. of, she uh, hops on a freighter, which is the, I guess, the space equivalent of, a, a, you know, a train. Yeah. And she goes out of town and the end of the story is she's leaving on this freighter. And then it sort of like kind of winds down and you have to see what happens in the next one. Yeah. Well, another thing that I wanted to talk about is a little heavy. So... I suffer from anxiety a lot. Very severe anxiety sometimes. And uh, this, a lot of Murderbot's internal monologue felt like a very, very real and very honest portrayal of that sort of anxiety. They, they're they very into opaquing the helmet. They don't like to be seen. There's a part where they straight up say, like, you could have punished me just by looking at me, which is like brutal but i i have felt that i like that doesn't need to like go somewhere where no one can see you is really powerful and important and my other favorite part of the story besides the i didn't read the paper because it was boring part is after in the denouement in the lead up to their hobo decision murderbot has this like epiphany where they realize that it's just as easy to be invisible in a large group of people as it is to be... Like, it's it's easy to be invisible dressed normally in a large group of people in the same way that it's easy to be invisible dressed in the armor amongst the people that she's... that they're serving on the survey team. And that was like, yeah, that's that's important. Like, it's a weird... There's a weird thing when you have, like, anxiety where it's like... I don't want anyone to see me, but it's okay if people I don't know who aren't going to talk to me see me so I can, like, go out in public and walk around as long as nobody says anything to me. Well, I think that I think that it's pretty clear that there's a lot of people who deal with anxiety and that this sort of 24-hour information cycle, this obsession with social media, this sort of duality of an of a digital life and a you know in real life kind of thing that increases the level of anxiety but and and also and the flip side helps a lot of people because they're able to express themselves in a comfortable safe zone and i feel like that's what she's dealing with she's dealing with both the anxiety and the sense of disenfranchism that she's feeling but she's also taking comfort and she's empowering herself because so she's able to do both, which helps her to sort of figure out a way to survive in this sort of world where she's a robot, but she's also empowered with a really large chunk of humanity. Yeah, but I think the thing, one of the things that I really appreciated about the story was that it doesn't like. I don't think it's it tries to be... It's not like trying for the inspiring ending. I think it's very easy to read Murderbot's decision at the end as being totally unhealthy and basically just an extension of what they were already doing. It's a different form of cocooning. 
but it feels like real like this this feeling of like i appreciate that you're trying to help me but you trying to help me is making me feel worse well i think that's one of the sort of key differences i mean there's a point where something is young adult because it does a certain thing yeah where people are like well young adults for everyone it is for everyone but there are components of young adult writing where they're specifically trying to write towards an audience of a group of people that are going through a certain thing. Sure, and sure. I think that's what's, what Murderbot is kind of like a really good character for that. Because, yeah, she, this could not be a young adult novel. It could just be a regular... There could be, they could just abolish the term young adult. But the fact that young adult says... It's okay to have these feelings. It's okay to be this way. And it's okay to make bad decisions. And it's okay to experiment. And it's okay to be like Murderbot to make a terrible decision. And then just that's what's going to roll out. You're going to deal with that. Well, I think the thing that sets us apart from, and again, I, I will own up to not knowing a ton about young adult. But in my mind, the thing that sets this apart from a young adult work is that there's no impulse to instruct. Like, Murderbot does not need to be a good role model. We don't need to provide a framework for dealing with trauma and identity issues and anxiety. We can just tell a story about a character that is dealing with those things. And maybe they deal with them in the right way, and maybe they deal with them in the wrong way. But whatever, this is just how they're doing it. But I think there is a lot of young adult literature that's exactly like that. That they're not meant to make you feel better or to make you feel... Like, you belong somewhere. But just to make you aware there are other people like you. And I think books like, you know, like Dumpling or books that deal with, like, you know, the more, like, provocative, more controversial components of, like, emotions and things like that. I'm not talking about, like, Harry Potter as, like, a young adult. And I'm talking about something a little more edgy, the kind of stuff that people are always, like, you know, wanting to ban because they don't want your children reading about transgender teenagers and things like that. But I think that that's what this is. It's not saying, like, this is how you get out of dealing with your anxiety. This is saying, like, you have this sort of disenfranchised feeling. It's okay because other people also feel that way and you can figure out how to work through it. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, but the great part about this is if you said that to Murderbot, they would make them furious. Yes, exactly. And the same way and that if like... You, if I ev- said that to you as suffering from anxiety, you would also feel furious. because <laughs> yeah. So you don't need a book to tell you yeah. that you should get help and try, you know, don't be alone and all these things that people tell you how to deal with your anxiety. You don't need that. You just need to have something that you can relate to, and that's what this does. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So overall, did you like this story? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, Yeah, I mean, like I said, like you said, I didn't think that the writing style was really cool. It was very efficient and sparse. Murderbot's a great character. I think a lot of the humans are not terribly well fleshed out. I mean, they get, like, personalities, but it's basically just, like... Murderbot tells us what they think of their personalities and then that's it there's like a lot of them and because of the length of the novel a lot of them don't really get to do much right. uh dr mensa gets fleshed out pretty well uh Graffin, who's sort of the mild secondary antagonist they're the person that doesn't kind of doesn't like Murderbot, gets kind of well fleshed out um and there's an interesting thing where like they their Graffin's decisions are and like opinions are almost always against Murderbot, but Murderbot, like, 
understands Garathan and understands the decisions and a lot of times agrees with him. Yeah. Which is cool. Like, it's an interesting take on the sort of, like, uh, like Walter Peck sort of, like, I'm the representative of this system and I don't like you, Murderbot House. You're going to get double secret probation. But then if the your, our heroes were like, yeah, no, you're right. I kind of suck. I think it was interesting and this didn't come up and I thought this was a big plot point. At the point when they're in the second survey site and she realizes that the other bots have been programmed with this chip. Yeah, so it turns out what's happening... And they want to put the chip in her and she has such a strong reaction to this possibility that they're going to invade her by putting this chip to make her act like an Again, like an evil murderer. Yeah, we, well, we don't realize when the moment when that's happening, it's not revealed until after that scene, is that, I mean, they're essentially attacking Murderbot and forcing them to relive the trauma that led to them hacking the governor module in the first place. Yeah, and there's this really, like, brutal sequence that follows where uh, Murderbot is like, you gotta kill me! Yeah, she does. And, and they're all sappy... Com- poly communist scientists and they're like no we don't want to kill you we love you harry don't go back to the woods and then murderbot just shoots himself in the chest <laughs> and well, it's dope i loved it so much i was like yeah of course just fucking do it she would go to such extreme to be to fight with their concept of normalization yeah so yeah i really liked it a lot i've been reading a lot of really heavy science fiction i'm at the very end of my hugo award list Mm-hmm. And I so I read two books by Werner Vinge, mm-hmm. Deepness in the Sky, which is very complicated, very long, and slow moving. And then I read his other book that he, he the two thousand and seven Hugo Award winner Rainbow's End, which is a comment on like aging and technology. So those kinds of really hard, kind of like long intense science fiction compared to this which was sort of fresh and modern and written in a modern style and the characters were much more relatable even to me which is kind of weird i really thought it was i thought it was great i mean i really enjoyed it a lot you know i'm not a huge fan of robot fiction i guess but (laughs) I like the character of Murderbot a lot, and I like the way that she created the world. Like I said, she didn't spend a lot of time front-loading the story with a lot of world-building, and I thought that was really sophisticated, especially if she was writing for an audience where she doesn't want to pander to them by... You know, I talked about this weird book, Caraval, that I had read a while ago, which had spent like 90% of the book was setting up for this complicated like fairy land fairy tale sort of story life that was in space and the book was so long and so boring because she spent all this time creating this world which she felt like she had to explain every single thing about even how money worked in the world and it was kind of like it felt like she was pandering it felt like that she was sort of thinking that her writers her readers weren't sophisticated enough to make them jump about like you know how things worked and it felt like martha wells was sort of like i think you can figure it out you can do it on your own you know you you know enough about this whole concept of science fiction where robots are sentient and we travel the stars you know you get this whole star wars thing where they're space pirates and everybody knows about the guardians of the galaxy and they can sort of make those 
connections about what happens in a space world like that. And I thought that was that was sort of refreshing. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, we need more science fiction about people who are bad at their jobs because most people are bad at their jobs. Do, do you notice in science fiction, if you're bad at your job, you, you're evil. You're either evil or you completely destroy the whole society. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, it's like there's so, like I was saying, there's just so much science fiction where it's like, you know, I love Rendezvous with Rama is a good example of this. But it's just like, oh, it's a team of hyper-competent specialists and they all do their, and they struggle. Obviously, there's conflict in the story and there are parts where there are in moments of vulnerability. But so much science fiction is about like badass like, I mean they bring it up in Murderbot brings it up in the story when they're comparing their real life to the fiction they enjoy there's so many stories about like hyper competent badasses and like everybody working together or like one person that's great at everything and it's just like that's not real to me everybody I know is like struggling and like Kind they're of, kind of good at their job, but there's a couple of things where you're just like, I just sort of do it like this, and I think it's the right way, and it hasn't blown up yet. I think it. This sort of reminded me a lot of like um, Forever War. Yeah, you know, where like another... he was like an accidentally he he was so bumbling as a soldier, he accidentally was really good at it, and then something like maybe like Starship Troopers, same thing where they were sort of like. They're, they were not quite prepared for what they were getting into. Yeah, I mean, Forever War is a good example of a of a story where the protagonist is not, you know, hyper-competent. I mean, they are. They're a good soldier, but, like... But I think the technology kept him alive and and helped him survive. Because it was always like, when you get out there, don't start shooting. And yeah. he gets out there and he immediately starts shooting. And then, you know, everything goes to shit. And they bring him back, and he's half dead, and they're like, okay, we can save him. Yeah. So, like, he keeps getting saved and keeps going through this sort of war. But well, he, yeah. I think that's because it's, like, about Vietnam, which is, like, it was the, the war that was fought by, like, the dude you know from the gas station. Like. Yeah, but, I mean, he wasn't, like, a super soldier. Or, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't even ever really become one. Yeah. And I think, like, A Canticle for Leibowitz is another... One where it's like pretty much everybody in that book is kind of a doofus who doesn't really know what they're doing, but are they're trying. Yeah. That's all I want. Also, if they don't need to be trying, I'm cool with somebody being a doofus who's not trying. But what's your favorite robot character from science fiction? My favorite robot character from science fiction? That's really hard. Can it be the Iron Giant? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh... I mean, I if it's maybe Marvin, the android from the Hitchhiker's Guide. I mean, he's another example of like Marvin's is insanely competent, brain the size of a planet. But they're just like they're depressed, and, and I, which is like I'm of two minds about it now because it's very clearly like their depression is a joke because they're a robot. But it it feels like real, like the the lack of motivation, this like disdain for. The perceived performativeness of everyone else's happiness, like the the conflict between Marvin and his coworker, the door, it <laughs> feels very real to me, and it's also super hilarious. I think Marvin's probably my favorite robot. Oh, I, that's a good one. That's pretty timely because. Um, do you have anything else to say about Murderbot? Uh, not that I can think of over the top of my head. I mean, I, I I think we didn't really we sort of touched on it, but I there's a very clear like. 
comparison drawn where the progress survey team views Murderbot as a person and like helps them get to a place where they can be a person and uh Grey Chris's plan hinges on stealing what little humanity the sec units have left in order to fulfill their ends. And it's like in a way like even like the company doesn't care about the sec units humanity and then Grey Chris actively tries to steal it away. And then to steal murder bots, humanity, when the, the the two times they try to inject them with the combat override module, which apparently is just like a USB dock you put in some the back of somebody's neck. Of course, I mean how how much science fiction? I mean we have science fiction technology to get us into the stars, but we don't have anything better than a USB drive. But I also really like that because it's like in any other sport of science fiction, you'd be like, oh, you can just stick it in the back of their neck. Why would it work like that? That's stupid. But then in this one, it's like, well, yeah, it works like that because it's cheap junk. Of course it would work like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, a lot of science fiction is about, like, I mean, you talk about William Gibson. A lot of it is, like, and I guess Neil Stevenson, too, is taking existing tech and, like, just keeping it alive and keeping it going well into the future. Yeah, I think that that's another thing that I like about the, this, the world in this. It's like I feel like a lot of science fiction sort of exists on two, like, ends. And it's like shiny new super tech, everything's fancy and cool. Or everything's old and grungy and dirty and it's Star Wars and we're keeping it together with, you know, duct tape and chicken wire. But it still, like, was really advanced tech. And I really like, and it feels much more real to have this idea of like, oh, everything's new. It's just bad. <laughs> it's just cheap and crummy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, like I got the, you know, my, I got my space rifle from like, you know, Alibaba. So it, like, it looks good, but like occasionally it just falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, I was thinking about that because when you were talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I was thinking about this book. That you had recommended it to me, and I did actually start reading it right after you recommended it to me, Space Opera. Oh, yeah, by Catherine M. Valente. And I, enjoy, I read it so... I, it was like a binge. I just kept reading it because it was so well-written. It was funny. It was contemporary. And I really liked the story. And it did sort of remind me, not so much as a homage to Douglas Adams, but sort of inspiration it was sort of inspired by the style of his writing yeah it does the same um narrative the same main narrative trick he does which is to describe things we are familiar with from a perspective that is unfamiliar with them as a way to highlight the inherent absurdity it's also like one of the reasons why um breakfast of champions is one of my favorite novels because that does the same sort of thing yeah and i thought i mean it's the story of there's this galactic singing competition. Space Eurovision. Space Eurovision. And I guess the Earth has been discovered to have sentient life on it, and they've been invited to compete in this contest. Well, the, no. Very specifically, the Earth has not been discovered to have sentient life on it. The contest is to determine whether or oh, not that, the right. life is sentient. That's how you do it. If you can win the singing contest, then you're li- then that's sentient. Because the idea is that, like, it's got a really, one of the best, like, Intros in a, in a very sort of different way from the Murderbot Chronicles, where it is just like info blast. Here it is laid out. Like it starts with a here's the history of the universe, very Douglas Adamsy sort of thing, where she explains that like essentially 
there have been millennia-long wars where every sentient race that discovers a new sentient race tries to convince themselves that that new sentient race isn't sentient so they don't feel bad about killing them. And it's led to, like, a galaxy's worth of constant war. And now this song contest is the way we're going to figure it out and hopefully prevent the war. There's a very, like, Cold War sort of feel to it. It's, in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of, you know, chess. Yeah. Like, the, like, oh, here they're going to have this competition. It's going to be in the Soviet Union. And there's all this, like, heightened tension where, like, war could break out at any moment. But we're focusing on this... Like, in the grand scheme of things, kind of silly competition. I liked the... Uh, first of all, I love the planet that was originally meant to be like a trash planet that now becomes an archive and a library. Mm-hmm. Because everything useless was sent there and now no one has anything useless and they don't understand things. So they have this sort of library. And I like how the alien that comes to invite them to the competition has this idea of all these different like artists that they want to recommend yeah and a lot of them are terrible and a lot of them are dead right like one of them is like they want prince and and then finally they end up getting this sort of like ragtag like team of like goofball music pop stars you know the protagonist is sort of like he's 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 like a david he's like a david David Bowie. bowie he also is sort of like the dude from the killers like he's like because he's a more recent artist he's like he feels like the kind of, like, you know, there was that, that burst of, like, new rock music in, like, the mid-2000s. And, like, there were all of these, like, bands like The Strokes and The Caesars that were, like, in iPod commercials and everywhere. And then, like, I don't know what happened, but that all just kind of fell away really quickly. Yeah. He feels like one of those artists to me. But he's also very clearly modeled on, like... A David Bowie sort of glam rock thing. Yeah, he's got he's like the you know the uh, sort of dynamic and very well known singer, the front man, and then his friend is the actual musician who is sort of semi retired. He's a dad now. Well, yeah, he's there was a, a studio musician. So then it's sort of like they're they're put together and they're like pushed off into space to save the human race and they're they can't really get their shit together themselves let alone compete yeah and they're like dealing with like something you know their careers ended because something tragic happened and they're like dealing with still dealing with that i think the details the sort of stories that she puts in there about the different aliens and the and like there's they go to a party on a planet and the planets instead of having oxygen it has like zoloft yeah so like the more you stay on the planet the better you feel and then you start to get um energized and you want to do all these projects and so he's on the planet and he starts thinking of all these things he wants to do and they're like oh it's just the air on the planet i thought that was really funny and then how these different, like she tells this history of the like space competition and all these different um, types of aliens that had won it in the past. It was just really funny and clever and witty, and it was it was very entertaining. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I liked it a lot. I'm glad that you dug it. Uh, she's a great writer. I mean, obviously, we talked about her on the previous episode, right? right. Or no? Yeah, because I think that was the only thing that the I previous had episode ever... was Sandman. When we talked about the Wolves of Brooklyn, that was the only sort of, the only experience I've had reading anything that she had written. That's a very somber story. This is a light and kind of 
like tongue in cheek, very sarcastic. I mean, it's very witty, and you can tell like it's similar to the style of the Walls of Brooklyn, but it is much more sort of avant garde style. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty different from the Wolves of Brooklyn. It's pretty different from a lot of stuff she's written. You know, I, I knew of her for a while in my mind. It's like, oh yeah, Catherine Valenti. She does like, she does like uh, Neil gaiman shit where she, you know, does stuff with myths and folklore. And a lot of her stuff is that. And this was like a pretty big departure. Not that she hadn't written anything that wasn't sort of fabulous before that. I think this would make a great movie. Yeah, I think it would too. Because I think it would be like, it would have a lot of special effects. It would be very entertaining with the music and the sort of... Did you... Yeah, yeah I absolutely agree. Did you see that they're, they are making a, uh, a show, I think? Yeah. Amazon Studios is making a show based on one of her books. Oh no, which it's one? A, the Refrigerator Monologues, which is very um, relevant to a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this show. It is a deliberate reference to the women in refrigerators thing. And it's sort of like a vagina monologues, but they're the dead girlfriends of superheroes. Ah, oh, I did hear about that. That mm-hmm. seems interesting. Good. Maybe it'll be her, 2019 will be her year. Yeah. No, I think that'll, that'll be pretty cool. Um, so have you read anything else? Anything that you want to talk about? Have I read anything that I want to talk about? No, I haven't been reading a ton. I've been focused a lot on other well, stuff. I also I listened to the audiobook of this book was another book that you had recommended to me and it was Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Lethem. Mm-hmm. It was published in 2000. So you had recommended it to me and at some for some reason I didn't read it. And then when I was doing some, you know, reading some book reviews and stuff cuz I'm a librarian and that's kind of stuff that entertains me. I was reading about his newest book called The Feral Detective, which mm-hmm. had gotten a lot of good buzz. So when we were talking about it, you said, like, have you read this book, Motherless Brooklyn? So I was on vacation, and I was working on a knitting project, and I downloaded the audiobook, And I really liked it. And I was really surprised because it's the story of a young man who grew up in an orphanage with a group of boys, and they become... They open up a detective agency with this man who is sort of like their mentor, who's this low-level mafia guy in Brooklyn. And he ends up being murdered, and the detective who has Tourette syndrome is going to solve the mystery of who shot his mentor. What I thought it was so interesting, it's kind of like a really, like, it's like a flip on the sort of, detective like a Raymond Chandler type of flawed detective and I think I talked about this a little bit he his flaw is like a physical flaw as opposed to sort of this sort of emotionally flawed Raymond Chandler like I'm a bad guy because I make bad decisions detective like he can't control a lot of times what makes him a flawed detective and I think that was sort of interesting yeah I also think there's an interesting idea there with like the detective is supposed to be especially the hard-boiled detective is supposed to be this very like stoic controlled figure and it's like well when you have Tourette's sometimes you you can't help what you're about to say you'll just do it and like he he's got to like sort of struggle with himself not i mean you know but there's like this idea that like he's just can't have complete control he just has to cede some control to the universe because that's just how 
his thing works. And I think I think that's what made it so interesting because it was kind of like, like what if all of like your emotions and your thought process was on the outside and other people could see it? Lionel like, S. Rog, that's not even the character. Yeah, and I think Edward Norton's going to play him. Oh, is he? He's also directing the movie. I think. So that yeah, makes I think sense. Edward Norton's going to play him, and then the older dude is going to be Willem Dafoe. But you know what? I I think like they're all pretty much just low level thugs. But the whole time I was reading it. It sort of reminded me of the writing style and the sort of the motivation of Fight Club. Yeah, I think there's that like male alienation yeah. and like these feelings of like weakness in a society where like you know you're told that you should, as a man, you should be strong and feel empowered, and it's like that's you know not how it works under capitalism. But I also think like in detective fiction, and this is sort of like a modern take on a noir, yeah. and it's kind of it has that sort of California noir, the kind of like, you know, the the golden age of noir detective. It has a nod to that. But it's kind of like, well, like, everybody looks at detectives and are like, okay, we write a detective story. We want him to be like Sherlock Holmes. We want him to be like this. He's kind of like, what if we made him like the really worst detective from a Raymond Chandler novel? And I think that's sort of... Yeah, he's not like analyzing the crime scene. There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of just like... Bumbling along. Yeah. It's kind of just like... You know, like that sort of male kind of personality where it's just kind of like punching things until he gets the result that yeah. he wants. You know, but I thought it was interesting and I thought he sort of, he wrote it in a way that wasn't like making a joke of having Tourette's or kind of like using that as an excuse for all of his bad behaviors. It was much more sophisticated. Yeah. And it's also like, the whole thing's in first person, right? I'm yeah. I'm not remembering that wrong. Yeah. So it's like. It's this thing that can often affect your... It's a story told by someone who has a disorder that can oftentimes affect or, like, completely halt their ability to communicate. But I also thought it was, like, it was kind of a weird mashup of, like, a picaresque novel. Because there's lots of funny, weird things. Like, there's a whole thing where... There, it's like the one of the plot points involves like a Buddhist temple. It's very and, Cohen Brothers. Yeah, and it kind of it's like I was reading about him, and he said he was inspired by like Graham Greene and Saul Bellows, and I kind of was like, this is an exact mashup of both of them. I could be. It makes a lot of sense. I, I I could see that influence too. I think the first time I read it, I hadn't really read anything by either of those guys, but if I went back to it now, I bet I would see the influence. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I did recommend that. The audiobook was really good. And it kind of, I felt like maybe the audiobook enhanced the story because you got to hear the detective. Yeah, what was his name? Lionel. Lionel. You got to hear Lionel's inner monologue. And you could hear sort of, even though he was, you know, with his Tourette's, he had his burst. But also what was happening inside his head is he was trying to control these impulses to shout these things out, which was helping him to try to solve this, you know, the mystery of who shot his boss. It's also an interesting kind of connection between his Tourette's and him as a detective, because a lot of what he talks about when he's explaining what Tourette's is like is that it's not, it's not like you just shout a random thing. It's like your brain latches on to certain patterns and sounds. And so, and like detective work is about recognizing patterns. And it's like an interesting, like exploration of like, you know what is what is your brain doing while you're trying to solve a mystery well i think that's it because a lot of the things that he kept repeating and focusing on were things subliminally in the back of his mind which were 
important parts to help them solve the mystery. Yeah, but I think it also very not like definitely avoids turning it into a superpower. Yeah. He's not monk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. I I, I did. I I read a lot of detective fiction, mm-hmm. and I read a lot of kind of flawed detectives, and I think he's sort of one of the best. Yeah, no, it's a really good book. I I'm glad that you read it. The first time I read it was because. Uh, Somebody told me, I just read Yiddish Policeman Team, and someone was like, oh, you should read Mother's Brooklyn next. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I could see the similarities in that. I mean, I don't know if his writing style is like Michael Shaman's. We talked um, a lot about I don't about think there's their actual... Well, I don't know. I don't think we talk enough about Michael Shaman. I mean, it's been a while since I've read anything he's written. He did do a uh, short for Star Trek recently that was pretty good. Yeah, you you mentioned that. So anything else? Uh, no, not that I can think of. I'm sorry. I've, I've betrayed our reading podcast by not reading anything. Well, we just decided in the beginning of this podcast that it's, oh, yes, it is a reading podcast, not a, yeah. not a book podcast. What are we going to be doing next? Do you have a, surprise me, I have no idea what we're doing next. Really? Next, you, next up, you, linearly in the podcast is volume seven, The Sandman, Brief Lives. Yes. But what... Novella, short story, book, slash, whatever. Are we going to be reading Um next? Well, I mean, we just talked about weird detective novels, so I think it makes sense to do one of those. Let's. So, for the next episode, we're going to read Sandman Brief Lives. The episode after that, we're going to be talking about The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pinchon. Okay. The postmodern detective story. Um, kind of the big daddy of the, the idea of the postmodern detective story. I know there's other stuff that predates it, like... Um, the third man, the third to a certain extent, sure. The third man. I was thinking more like um, uh, the man who was Thursday, oh. and um, what is the uh, Borges something in the compass? Do you know what I I'm don't talking know, but about? But I was thinking about Thirty Nine Steps. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Isn't that more of a espionage thing? Could be. I want to find out what this story is that I cannot remember the name of. Death in the compass. Okay. That's was that's in Fixioni, so I just so, read that this year. Get your smarty pants on because we're talking about Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, but don't get your smarty pants all the way on because it's, it's overblown right. how how impenetrable his stuff is. It's this. There are parts of Crying of Lot Forty Nine which I think are like intentionally confusing, but a lot of his stuff is more straightforward than people give it credit I think for. That Gravity's Rainbow suffers from the Ulysses. Virus. What does that mean? Where people think that Gravity's Rainbow is so hard to read that it's like Ulysses. Like, you, there's only, yeah. you can't, like, everybody claims to have started it and never finished it because it's not that long. It's not that long and it's not that complicated. And I think, I feel like if you can read a David Foster Wallace novel, you can definitely read it. Well, I think that's the thing. Novel. I think more than the, the Ulysses virus or whatever you called it, it's in it's Infinite Jest, right? That people think it's like. Yeah. Which even Infinite Jest is not confusing. It's just really long and has a bunch of footnotes in it. Yeah, well, I think that maybe Gravity's Rainbow could be improved with some footnotes. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you have Wikipedia now, so you can read Wikipedia and you can get this sort of plot and then you can read the book. No, no, we're not going to relitigate Gravity's Rainbow right now. We... <laughs> Um, I Catch Twenty Two also has that problem. People yeah. are like, don't want to read that because it's too long or it's too confusing or whatever. And I've never understood that. There's probably a huge list of novels that people either think are too hard to read. People get that about Borges all the time. 
it's just too avant-garde. I can't wrap my head around that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. But, you, you know, and then there's more classical, like, Moby Dick is another one where people are like, War and Peace. But that's just... The Magic of, Mountain. Thomas yeah. Mann. That's less well-known than some of these other ones, I think. But yeah, so, Sandman Volume 7? Brief Lives. Brief Lives. Then, The Crying of Lot 49. Then, spoiler alert, Sandman Volume 8. And then, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't decided what we're going to do after that. Probably another novella, maybe a short story. Who's to say? Who knows? All right. Is that it? We're done? Yeah, I think we're done. Do you have anything else to say? Do you spoiler got another alert. topic? Stay tuned. Say it again. Give me a clean Spoiler one. alert. Stay tuned.